And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked to you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice it on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, man, it's nice to have the breeze. Everybody appreciate the breeze. Um, I'd never heard the Minnesota rendition of Pharaoh, Pharaoh. <laughs> that is a really amazing blending of cultures as you have like, we're thinking of the ancient Near East with like a pop song from what, the 1950s? And now with Minnesotan kind of uh, flavorings to it. I love it. I love it. Thanks for doing that for us, uh, Marissa. And thanks kids for singing along. And by kids, I mean anyone under the age of 50. So thank you all. <laughs> that was awesome. We are continuing on in our series uh, in Exodus uh, tonight. We're going to talk about the law, as has already been mentioned. And uh, before jumping into the law, I want to just remind everybody that uh, the flow of Exodus um, has a couple of parts, a couple of main parts. Uh, by the way, if you um, want to follow along sermon notes, you can go to the same website or same place on the app, and you can uh, access sermon notes to kind of follow along. But uh, we're in this series on Exodus, and Exodus largely breaks down into two parts. The first part is Exodus 1 through 18, where we're getting a description of God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. So lots of chapters about how God miraculously and um, painstakingly, but also powerfully delivers Israel from slavery. Then you hit uh, chapters 19 through 20. In those chapters, Israel is being delivered for a purpose. God hasn't just delivered them from slavery just to deliver them from oppression. He's done that uh, to, to relieve them, but he has also got a, a mission for them. He has a purpose for them. And so chapters 19 through 20 kind of spell out some of that mission. If you look at Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, it reads this way. We've talked about this before, but it's just by way of review. It says, Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then God says, these are the words, Moses, that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God is saying, Moses, say these things to Israel. And what Israel needs to hear is, yes, you've been delivered, but now I have a purpose for you. I want you to be a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests, but the entire nation, the entire kingdom will be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? Priests stand between God and the people. Priests are something like a mediator between God and other people. So this whole nation, this whole nation has kind of a priestly function to be able to show the rest of the world what their covenant God is like. God is going to use the people of Israel to show the whole world what he is like. And God is also going to use this kingdom of priests to receive God's goodness and God's blessing, but to be a conduit of extending that goodness and that blessing into God's world. So God has a purpose for Israel, a really strong, a really powerful and important purpose. But what is the vehicle for getting this done? God has this purpose for Israel, for them to... Uh, show the nations of the world what God is like and to also be a conduit of his goodness and blessing coming to the world. How is that going to happen? The answer is the law. God says this to them in Exodus 19, right on the cusp of giving them the covenant or what's called the law. 
So the law is, the, is this uh, vehicle for getting this done. Last week we had a sermon, Jason preached a sermon on the, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. That's a summary of the law. Today we're going to look at Exodus 21 through 31, a small chapter or small passage, just Exodus 21 through 31. It's 10 chapters long. <laughs> we're going to kind of breeze over it and we're going to look at two sections. There are two main sections in Exodus 21 through 31. The first is Exodus 21 through 23, which is called the Book of the Covenant. It's three chapters of laws for how to worship God, but also laws for how to treat people. So the book of the covenant is three chapters of specific and how to um, uh, care for other people, how to treat people. But then Exodus 25 through 31 is six chapters about um, building the tabernacle, this place where people would worship God, where Israel would worship God, six very long chapters that are very minute and intricate and precise about what the tabernacle would look like. All of these are laws formally or like strictly speaking, or at least instructions that Israel was to follow. Now, how many of you have ever gotten your, you know, your time with the Lord squared away? You've sacrificed and made, you know, effort to have time in the word and you've got maybe some coffee there and you're, you know, ready to just sit down and hear from the Lord and hear from his word. And you read something in the, in the Bible and you're like, I'm just confused. I'm just confused. And maybe sometimes you've encountered that in the law specifically. And you're like, I'm, I'm not sure what that means for me, or I'm not sure what to do with that. I think specifically of this law that's actually in this section, it's Exodus 23, 19. It says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Has anyone boiled a young goat in its mother's milk recently? Recently, <laughs> Rachel, I knew I could count on you to raise your hand. Yeah, uh, growing up in Missouri, we weren't far off from that, to be honest. Um, we grew up, grew up eating oatmeal, and we had goats growing up, and we had goat's milk to go with our oatmeal, so we called it goat meal uh, as a joke. And um, all the, the goat's milk was freshly squeezed every, every morning, uh, sometimes by, my, by me. And having grown up smelling the goats, I was like, I'm not drinking that milk. <laughs> It was hard for me to get past that. To this day, I still can't eat goat's cheese. So there's strange laws. We don't know what this law means. Even scholars right now still don't know what this law exactly is getting at. But if we try and look at the laws as a whole, if we kind of piece them together as a whole in terms of what they're doing, it starts to make more sense. And if we also start to get into the ancient Near Eastern world, the world of the Israelites, the world of the Hebrew peoples, some of this starts to make a little more sense. So before asking, what does this law mean for me? We want to understand what do these laws mean completely in their larger purpose? And then also, what do these laws mean for Israel? And what are they trying to accomplish? So let's look at the book of the covenant first. The book of the covenant, again, is largely Exodus 21 through 23. It actually starts in the tail end of 20. And it's the, the set of passages that Bekele read for us. So laws about worship is how it opens. But then it moves into laws about how to treat people. So let's start with a sample law about worship. Again, this is Exodus 20 verses 23 through 24. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So look at this law in verse 23. It says, make no gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. In the ancient Near East, everybody else, everybody else was making gods and idols and worshiping these gods. 
But Israel's told to worship differently. Don't make gods of, idol, of stone or, or, or gods of gold or silver. And part of that is because God himself uh, cannot be captured by the world because God has made the world. God is totally separate from the world. God is not like the gods of the other nations where the other nations worshiped God like there was a God associated with the sun. There was a God who lived on this mountain, a God that lived in this region, a God who was associated by snakes. And gods were thought to kind of be housed by some of these areas of creation itself. And then you could make idols that were somehow or another sacred locations of this divine power. And God says, no, I cannot be housed by anything that I have made. I'm actually the God that's over everything. So the way that Israel worshiped their God would say something about their God by not worshiping idols, and not worshiping things made of wood and stone, they were powerfully saying to the rest of the world, we worship a God who's over all of creation. It's one God and he's over all of creation. It said something to the world about God. But secondly, look at uh, verse 24 in the second half of the verse. It says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, wherever you set up these altars, altars were places to remember God and what he had done, where you worship God rightly at these altars, he will be remembered And he will what? He will come to you and he will bless you. Worship of God, right worship of God, means that he comes to inhabit the praises of his people. He comes near in his presence and he's with his people. And what does it say? I will come to you when he's present, he blesses his people. This is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. Wherever God proves to be present, sometimes he's he's having to judge people, but often when he's present with his people, he's providing for his people. When you hear the word presence, think provision. When God was present with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he provided for them. As soon as God had to usher Adam and Eve out of the garden, they're out of his presence, his provision is still there, but it becomes strained. Now he's promising again to be with his people, to to be present, and he's promising to provide for them. So this law, it says something about who God is, that God is over all creation, and it would communicate to all the nations that this God is over all creation, but it would also be a way of God bringing blessing to Israel and then putting them in a position to be a blessing to other peoples. So this is how this law helps them to accomplish their purpose, the purpose that God has given them. Now, this isn't the only law about worship in this whole section. That's just a sample. Let's look at some laws about how to treat people. Lots of different laws about how to treat people. I'm going to cover some of the main types of laws about how to treat people. So first of all, right after talking about how to worship God, it addresses the issue of slavery. In Exodus 21 verses 1 through 2, it says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Now, most of us, when we read this, it raises immediate concerns, right? Like, is the Bible condoning slavery? Uh, In American history, there are certain Christians who appeal to passages like this to support the Atlantic slave trade. There's a second concern, which is similar, but maybe even greater. The concern might be, is the author of Exodus here, um, is he immediately going to slavery and these laws about how to treat people is immediately going to slavery in order to protect and secure this institution of slavery? Is this author and maybe this God of the Hebrew Bible so concerned to protect this institution of slavery that he's going to talk about that, talk about that first? But if we look at this in context, that's not what's going on. Remember, God says he's going to cause Israel to... Uh, 
bear his name to the nations. He's going to cause Israel to show the nations what he's like. And so Israel should look a bit different than the other nations, a good bit different. Now let's look at how Egypt uh, practiced slavery. And then let's look at what God is telling the Israelites to do regarding slavery. In Egypt, uh, slavery was perpetual. There was no release in an individual's lifetime. And any children that Hebrews had were put into slavery. It was perpetual, not just for the life of the individual, but it went on to the next generation, perpetual slavery. Also, Egyptian slavery was forced labor. Israelites were forced into this, almost like being stolen and put into forced labor. Certainly was not voluntary. And it was ethnically based. Pharaoh enslaved Israel, the Israelites, an ethnic people. But look at what God says here in Exodus 21, verses 1 and 2. Here's a rule for you. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. There's a limit. And in the seventh year, he goes free for nothing. In other words, there's a limit to how long uh, somebody could be enslaved. In the seventh year, they should go free, and they should go free for nothing. There's nothing additional that a slave or a servant should have to pay. So there's a time, time limit. There's free release within Israel. Secondly, there's no stealing. There's no human trafficking that it's, that's allowed. Exodus 21, verse 16, explicitly, clearly condemns the practice of stealing humans and selling them into slavery. Clearly condemns that practice. And, and I think it's even punishable as a capital offense in Israel, punishable by death if somebody is stealing other humans. Slavery in, in Egypt or in Israel in many ways was a little bit more contractual, more voluntary. Uh, Douglas Stewart, an Old Testament scholar, has said it's kind of like signing up for the military. Not, ex- not identical, but when you sign up for the military, you kind of sign your life over in some ways to Uncle Sam, so to speak. And this would have been similar. Or like some people have said, it's more like indentured service. And it's certainly not ethnically based. This kind of servanthood or even slavery was uh, not just for Israel's non-Jewish cohort. Both Jews and non-Jews could end up in uh, this role as a servant. So in all these ways, God's laws, um, they're not trying to protect this institution and salvage it. They're transforming it. They're transforming it to be more humane and to protect the value of these human beings who end up serving as servants within Israel and serving as slaves. It's more like contractual service and voluntarily joining the military and saying, even for these, there need to be protections. Obeying God's law, if Israel would obey these laws, it would say something about God. It would say that this God values the life of those who are in a precarious position and who can often be taken advantage of. Israel should be a peculiar people. They should look different, look unique with their concern to protect those human beings who might be most easily or most often mistreated or exploited. That's Douglas Stewart, again, Old Testament scholars language. Israel should be concerned to protect those human beings who might be most easily or most often mistreated or exploited. This is God showing value for human life and for human life that is often easily mistreated and not valued. So obeying God's law says something about God and his value on human life, but it also would bring blessing and well-being to those servants or slaves who would have been protected by these laws. Now, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy then in America's history. The, The way that slavery was practiced in America's history, actually transgressed some of these laws that Exodus spells out. 
It involved sometimes stealing people, stealing Africans, and selling them into perpetual lifelong slavery. It's a tragedy that there were Christians who were complicit in this and encouraged it and condoned it. It's also a caution to us to read our Bibles carefully, right? To read really carefully what the scriptures are saying and what the scriptures are talking about. But it also makes me grateful for those abolitionists, both black and white, and many of them Christian, who are willing to push against the Atlantic slave trade and push hard and put their neck on the line even to push against it. So uh, God gives us this law about slavery. Then he moves on to talk about restitution. This is Exodus 22, verse 5. Laws about making things right or making restitution. Exodus 22, 5 says, If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of it in his own field and his own vineyard. So this law is saying if somebody's animal gets loose and goes into another person's field and eats some of that person's crop, the person who owns the animal needs to make that right, give from the best of their field or the best of their vineyard to provide for the person who's had some of their crops eaten up. What's going on here is the sense of valuing another person's uh, ability to provide for themselves or provide for their families, uh, the ability to have a livelihood. The book of Proverbs uh, says a lot about the importance of working hard. It talks a lot about the dangers of being lazy or being slothful and where that can leave individuals or where that can leave uh, people. And so uh, Proverbs talks a lot about the importance of hard work. And there's a proverb that even talks about it's a good thing to have inheritance to give to your children. Hard work is a good thing. It's hard to work. It's good to work and to provide for yourself and to provide for your family if you're in a family and to be able to uh, pass that on to future generations. And so this law is saying as people are working hard, as a fellow Israelite, as working hard, as a member of your people, is working hard to provide for themselves, provide for themselves and provide for their family, don't take advantage of them. Don't take some of their livelihood away. And if your animal goes into their field and takes some of their crop, make it right. Honor and respect their ability to work and their ability to provide for their family. There are also laws about caring for those who are unprotected and easily mistreated. This is kind of similar to some of the laws restricting the hardship of slavery and transforming the practice of slavery. This is a way of protecting the vulnerable and saying it's not just about servants. This is also about protecting uh, a broad range of people. So Exodus 22 verses 21 through 24 says this, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Sounds like a classic Jesus loves me passage, right? Sometimes the Bible shocks us and reminds us that God takes uh, injustice seriously and God takes unrighteousness seriously. What's going on in this passage, it mentions sojourners, widows, and fatherless. The sojourner was actually a term for people who came into Israel and chose to become part of Israel and at some level uh, often adopted the ways of the people of Israel. Uh, they're kind of different than what might be called a foreigner. There's a different Hebrew word for the foreigner. So this is somebody who's kind of like a resident alien who's uh, been welcomed into Israel, is part of the community at some level, and uh, many times would even be circumcised and therefore take part in lots of Jewish rituals like this, the Passover. 
And so there's language about the sojourner, but then there's also language about the widow and the fatherless. When these words come up, they're kind of a heading. They are a heading in the Hebrew scriptures or in the Old Testament. Sorry, my religious studies brain and the language is coming out. Hebrew Bible, I also mean Old Testament. My apologies. Has anyone been confused? Why is he talking about the Hebrew Bible? You are not at a synagogue. You are at a Christian church. <laughs> it's just that sometimes when I teach... Um, uh, Old Testament, I teach it as Hebrew Bible here at the university, so sometimes that'll come out. So um, all that is said to say, when you read in the Old Testament about the, uh, the widow and the orphan and the alien, it's kind of a heading for this large group of people, not just those three kinds of people, but anyone who was in a really risky kind of position. It symbolizes the entire range of unprotected and easily mistreated people in ancient times. So in Egypt, how was Israel treated? as one of these kind of unprotected groups. It says, you were sojourners when you were in Egypt. And how were they treated? They were treated harshly. Servitude, lifelong, perpetual, generations-long servitude, treated brutally. And God is saying, that's not how you were to treat the sojourner in your midst. That is not how you value the life of the sojourner in your midst. And that's not what you're to do with the widow or the orphan. Israel is called here to show the character of their God by valuing the life and protecting of the lives of those who could often be unprotected and easily taken advantage of. It says God values these lives. And then there's justice in legal matters. Exodus 23 verses 1 through 3 says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So these laws have to do with being just in a court of law. Everyone remember the 10 commandments, the one command that says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. This is kind of talking about legal cases. When you're in a court and you're in a legal case, don't bear false testimony in court. Because what you do when you bear false testimony is you legally put somebody at a disadvantage in an unjust way. Tell the truth in court. Seek justice in court. Be party to justice when you are at court. And so firstly, it says don't pervert justice by lying to make a guilty man look innocent. If somebody is guilty, don't share false testimony, don't give false witness to make a guilty person look innocent. That perverts justice. Also, don't pervert justice by siding with popular opinion instead of what is right. It says you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many. It's really easy to go with popular opinion and to kind of be swayed by popular opinion. But the scriptures say, if you're in a situation, uh, like for an Israelite, if they were at a legal uh, matter, don't uh, side with popular opinion if you know the truth to actually push against that and to be counter to popular opinion. Seek justice, don't pervert justice. And finally, and kind of surprisingly, it says don't pervert justice by being partial to a poor man. Is anyone else surprised to see that? I've been studying the Bible for many years and I was surprised to be reminded of that. <laughs> That's in the scriptures. Most of the time when we think of perverting justice, we think of showing partiality to the rich. And I think that's usually what happens and the scriptures have to address that. But here the text is saying it's possible even to pervert justice by showing partiality to a poor man. And God's desire for justice is such that he says, don't bend and show partiality to a poor man. Seek justice and don't pervert it. So, in all these ways, with all these laws, they're aimed at guiding Israel and bearing God's image or bearing his name before the nations, representing God 
to all the nations. In their worship, in Israel's worship, they would show the world what God is like. In their worship, they would also experience God's presence and blessing, and then they'd be able to share God's blessings with others, be a conduit for blessing others. And how they treated one another as they lived righteously, as they treated one another fairly, as they respected one another and cared for one another, didn't wrong one another, and even made provision for those who could easily be taken advantage of and provided protections for those, Israel should look different. It should say something about their God's value for human life. And it should also cause them to experience goodness as they treat one another, treat the sojourner, treat the fatherless and the orphan well. Treat one another well. So then uh, that's the book of the covenant. Then we move on into instructions for the tabernacle. We ready for the tabernacle? We will zip through the tabernacle. (laughs) Yeah, bring on the tabernacle. I'm excited. Seriously, this is a pretty amazing part of the scriptures, and I think you'll see why. So the tabernacle, uh, there's Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9, that says this. Let them make a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The author of Exodus decided to move into Yoda's word order, sentence order, exactly as you show concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, so you shall make it. I could just see baby Yoda, like that's his first language. Um, That has nothing to do with the text, I apologize. (laughs) So God is going to tell Israel how to build the tabernacle, how to build this tabernacle. Have you ever read these instructions for the tabernacle and just like, okay, get on with it. Does anyone get bored in reading about the precise, am I the only one that gets bored reading the precise measurements of the tabernacle? So it's easy to get lost in all of these instructions and all this precision, precision. But if we see what Israel would have heard, it's a really stark message they're hearing as the tabernacle is being described. So here's, the, here's some tidbits for how the tabernacle is supposed to be uh, structured uh, as these chapters spell it out. First of all, there would be an ark of the covenant where the covenant itself would be put into this ark. The ark would be in the tabernacle. And God's presence would would be upon this ark. So in the tabernacle is God's presence upon the ark. There was also a lampstand to be erected in this tabernacle, and it was in the shape of a tree. So you have this uh, lampstand in the shape of a tree. There's also the law. The law or the covenant is put into the tabernacle, and the law tells Israel what is good, what is right, and what is evil. And then there's an entrance to the tabernacle that faces east. And the entrance to the tabernacle had this curtain with these cherubim on it that kind of guarded the entrance into the tabernacle. So you've got God's presence at the ark. You've got a lampstand that's in the shape of a tree. You also have the law, which tells what is good and what is evil. And then you have this entrance facing east with these cherubim guarding the way. If you go to Genesis 1 through 3, in the Garden of Eden, let's look at some things that were present there. First of all, God is present with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There is a tree of life, just like there's a lampstand in the shape of a tree. There is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like God has the law placed in the ark, which tells Israel what is good. Then you also have the the entrance and exit to Eden when Adam and Eve were ushered out. Which way were they facing? They faced east. And what was guarding the way after they went out? There was an angel, much like a cherubim. The temple, as it's being described in all of its elaborate structure, looks an awful lot like Eden. 
God is saying to the Israelites, what I gave Adam and Eve when I lived among them and walked with them in the Garden of Eden, I'm coming to restore that. I will again dwell with my people. I will dwell with my people. Have you ever had somebody stop by your house and you're really tight on time and somebody comes in, Adam, I'm not looking at you because you've done this. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> so somebody comes to your house, you're tight on time and you're like, yeah, how you doing? I uh, gotta go. And they take off their shoes and you're like, oh no. And then you're like, I'm really tight on time. I'm going to be late to this appointment. And then they take off their coat. You're like, oh no. And then they move into your house and like, then they sit down, like their physical movement, what they're doing with their physical objects is communicating. I'm setting up shop. I am making myself comfortable. And in all of these tabernacle instructions, Jewish hearers would have heard this God, our covenant God, our creator God is setting up his dwelling with his people again. He's saying, I'm going to come live among you again. And I'm going to, as I live among you, I'm going to provide for you. And as I live among you, I'm going to bring blessing to you. This is a powerful, powerful message to the people of Israel, and it would have leapt off of the page to them. So in all these ways, God has given his law to Israel. And in many ways, it's a gift. God's law is a gift in that it's a way to experience his presence. And by experiencing his presence, it's also a way to experience his blessing and his provision. And by giving them, them these laws for how to live, to, to live righteously with one another, to value life, to value one another, and to care for one another, it's a way to experience goodness in the way that they would treat one another. The law is intended as a gift. Now, the law is hard. The law is not easy, especially when we remember that we are sinful people. And to enjoy God's presence is not an easy ordeal right? Moving into the presence of a holy, righteous, absolutely good God. When we struggle with sin and with selfishness and with wanting to bend things in our own favor, when we struggle with all kinds of sin, it's hard to come into God's presence. And so God is promising to provide presence, though this is not an easy presence, but it's still a gift. And the, the laws for how to live are a gift so that all of Israel could experience thriving and flourishing and they could respect and value one another and treat one another well. And all of them would be able to thrive, especially those who are in da dangerous or difficult positions and could easily be taken advantage of. Doesn't this sound like good news? It sounds like very, very good news. But the problem is, and we all know this if we've been at church any amount of time, but the, the, the problem is that the law on its own was not enough for Israel to accomplish God's purpose for them. The law could not fully see them through to help them fulfill God's purpose because they couldn't keep all the law. They could not fulfill the law. In short, they could not stay faithful to their faithful God. They would set up idols and worship other gods. They would wander in and out of idolatry, worshiping Yahweh for a while, then worshiping these other gods, sometimes worshiping Yahweh and other gods at the same time. They struggled to be faithful to their God. Because of that, they struggle to always feel his presence. There's this powerful moment when God finally has to discipline his people because they've repeatedly been unfaithful to him and he finally departs, his presence departs from the temple. It's this terrible moment where God has to say, I've been warning you and now I have to withdraw my presence from you. And they also did not treat people rightly, whether fellow Israelites or those outside the nation or widows or orphans or aliens, they struggled to treat one another rightly. And in both these ways, when they start worshiping these idols, who do they look like? Are they showing the world what God looks like? They look like the other nations. 
They start looking like Egypt or other Mesopotamian religions. And when they treat people uh, the ways that these other nations treated people, they start looking like those nations too. They don't show the world who God's like. They actually are just holding up a mirror and saying, hey, we're just like you. We're acting like you all now. Israel did not walk in all of God's blessing. They didn't fulfill God's purpose because they struggled to fulfill the law and keep the law. But as we close tonight, the good news is that Exodus in, in what it sets up about the law and all the goodness of the law is finally completed and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. When Israel could not keep the law and would not be faithful to God, it would not properly practice righteousness. God sent his only son, not just to die on a cross, but God sent his only son to actually fulfill all of those pieces of the law, all of those pieces of the law. So first of all, Jesus fulfilled the law and he shows us what God's like. Israel was supposed to show the world what their God is like. They didn't do it. But John 1, 17, verse 18 says this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Who is it that has properly and completely borne the image of God? It's Jesus. When people see Jesus, they see God because Jesus completely fulfills the law. He completely fulfills the law. He completely serves God, serves God the Father faithfully, does the Father's will, and he shows us what righteousness is like, selfless love, care for the others, sacrificial love for other people. Jesus made God known faithfully because he totally kept the law. And then Jesus also bore the sins of the world. John one twenty nine says, um, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When all of us in our own ways, to varying degrees and different levels and all kinds of different ways, struggle to be completely righteous, we struggle to live up to the law, we struggle to value humans, whether that's people like a roommate, someone in a class, uh, or you know, someone in our family, parents or siblings, a coworker, we struggle to properly value other people and love them and care for them. Sometimes we take advantage of people. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're doing it. All these ways that we're not righteous. All these ways that we can be so focused on some of our own plans and some of our own purposes and be kind of oblivious to the needs of those around us and maybe sometimes uncaring of the needs of those around us or the need to be right in an argument with a spouse or with a child. Have you ever been in an argument with your child? Like, I'm going to be right. (laughs) All kinds of ways that we can be unrighteous. Jesus has to come and to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And thank God that he sent his son to completely fulfill the law so that when Jesus goes to the cross, he not only washes away our sin, when Jesus has completely fulfilled the law, he can then pass on to us his righteousness. Are you glad that in the morning when you wake up and you're like, I blew it again yesterday. I blew it again yesterday and I regret it. You can say, thank God for the Lamb of God who gives me his righteousness when I confess my sin. Is that not an amazing grace when you remember that afresh and anew in the midst of your sin? That God has grace for you and he will pass on his righteousness to you by grace? And then thirdly, Jesus taught us how to value others. It's not that none of this had been spelled out. Jesus actually reteaches what the Old Testament had already taught. Jesus clarifies what the Old Testament had already taught, that we should value human life. We should value others. We should love others. 
Jesus, in his day, valued people who were often overlooked or undervalued or people who were in need. So the, the little children, kind of like tonight, it's awesome that the kids had a chance to come up here and sing. In Jesus' day, the little kids came to, uh, to Jesus, and some people said, no, don't, don't let these kids bother Jesus. And Jesus says, let the little children come unto me because they matter. They're viewed as a nuisance. Jesus says they're valuable. Let them come unto me. Jesus associated with lepers who were considered unclean and who were often pushed to the outskirts of society. Jesus interacted with women in ways that communicated that they had dignity in a time when often people did not communicate to women that they had dignity. Jesus interacted with tax collectors who were despised. Many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, just mere fishermen, not trained scholars or people who are wealthy or well-to-do. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus redefines who is my neighbor, and Jesus kind of tears down any kind of barrier that would say, well, that person's not my neighbor. Anyone <laughs> counts as our neighbor. So Jesus teaches us and reminds us that in the Old Testament, God was trying to say all human life is valuable. We should protect it. We should be concerned for human life and protect it. And Jesus is reteaching that, how we love and value people, even those who are overlooked and undervalued and those who are in need. For you tonight, if you've ever felt like the world's way of thinking and the world's kind of value system communicates that you are unvaluable, not valuable, or don't belong. And there are a host of ways that the world can communicate that you don't belong. Not smart enough, you don't look right, uh, you're not talented enough, you've not achieved enough. Um, you have maybe something in your life you're afraid to share with people because they might look down on you, whatever. There are a host of reasons that people could say you don't belong. But I want to tell you that you're made in the image of God. God values you. God values you. And God also calls us as a church to be able to love one another, to try and be righteous, to be fair to one another, and to also to seek the well-being of those who are overlooked and undervalued and in need. I think of a, a gleaning law from the Old Testament. Uh, this actually isn't in the particular passage we're dealing with right now. But uh, gleaning laws in the Old Testament said, make space or margin in your life for those who are in need. So when you go to harvest your crops, uh, don't harvest at all. Leave some. Leave some for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and the alien. Leave some there so that they can go glean that too. It's a way of saying, leave margin in your life to care for other people. And I think that's a powerful teaching for us. Like Jesus teaches us that as well. Is there margin in our life for other people? Is there margin in our life for fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? But is there also margin in our life to care for people who might be undervalued or overlooked? So there are a host of ways I think many of you at Grace Community Church are already doing this. Some of you are caring for the unborn and watching out for them who are very vulnerable. Some of you are engaging in foster care and adoption and trying to care for today's orphans. Some of you care for elderly, uh, the elderly and go to nursing homes or maybe even work at a nursing home or a facility like a retirement home. Some of you serve at Faith Academy and are trying to work towards racial reconciliation. Some of you just open up your home and say, anybody's welcome in my home and I'll care for them and I'll show hospitality to them. But there's one specific thing we can do every year as we get close to the school year. There's a way that we can create space and margin in our lives for, uh, for folks. Uh, international students often come to the University of Iowa. And it's often the case that as they come here, they don't, uh, they're not shown much hospitality. I was talking with a pastor, has nothing to do with Grace. He's down south of Iowa City. And he said there was an international student uh, who was talking with him and said, uh, I was getting ready for my first year 
of school, the first year of college. And in my culture, people invite, when you come to a new place or you go visit somewhere, people typically invite you in. They show you hospitality and they welcome you into their home. And so he says, my culture, you buy a thank you gift ahead of time so that when you're welcomed into a home, you can give a thank you gift to somebody. So this, this guy's getting ready for the school year. He buys a thank you gift. The entire first semester goes by, nobody invites him to his house. The entire second semester goes by and nobody invites him over to his house, to their house. And he throws away the thank you gift he bought at the beginning of the school year because nobody would welcome the student into their house or hang out with the student. International students can often go overlooked and unnoticed. And so it's a great way to show care for them. It's a great way to show that God cares for them. And it's a great way to also have a chance to share the gospel with them. Um, some of you have done this here at Grace Downtown, have adopted international students and cared for them, um, welcomed them into your home, into your family, and uh, have had opportunities to share the gospel with them. One student just recently uh, has been cared for for about three or four years and was getting ready to go back home and wrote this really heartfelt letter uh, to the folks who had uh, continued to care for her, is Lauren and James Ancrum, that had been really serving this, uh, this young lady. And she just said, I didn't believe in God before I came here, but after talking with you all and spending so much time with you all, I really do believe in God and I'm reaching out for him more. I'm not there yet to like, you know, believe in Jesus, <laughs> but I'm praying and I'm reaching out for God. There are a lot of ways that serving international students can give us a chance to, to show them who God is like and to share the gospel with them. So I invite you to consider that tonight. And as we close, uh, I want to say two things. If you're interested in helping with international student ministry, just come talk to me after service. I'd be glad to explain what that's like, get you connected with uh, the process and help you get connected with the student. But secondly, I'd like to say there's so many ways that our world can suffer from unrighteousness. You all, don't we see unrighteousness around us in a host of different ways? There are just so many forms of unrighteousness that we see in the world. And do you grow weary from it? Are you exhausted from looking at the news and just being like, what new kind of unrighteousness am I going to see today? And what kind of pain has that brought into the world? What kind of conflict and struggle has that brought into the world? just want to remind you that this Jesus, who came to dwell among his people, not just at the tabernacle, but when he became flesh to dwell among us, is promising a better, a better country, as the author of Hebrews puts it. Mindy's wife, Mindy's in a Hebrews study right now. It was just reminded of the language of a better country that Jesus has come to promise us a better country, to promise us a heavenly kingdom. And for those who believe in Jesus, there's a time coming when as we try to practice righteousness and we try to grow with that and we try to work for righteousness more and more, but when we feel exhausted from the struggle and feel like we're having a hard time seeing headway, there is a victory that is assured for those who believe in Jesus and that Jesus has won at the cross. And so I pray that that would be encouragement to us and cause us then to say, Lord, help us to grow into greater and greater practices of righteousness. Lord, thank you for this day. We just want to thank you so much that you're a good God who's given us the law and the law is actually good. Lord God, you want to live among people. You want to be near people and you want to provide blessing. You want to provide goodness. Lord, you want us to know you. Lord, also thank you for your law that shows us what is righteous. You want us to live righteously and to love others, even loving others sacrificially. We just thank you for that, God. We thank you, Lord, also that as we look at our own lives and we see there are a lot of different ways we can struggle to totally be righteous. And we fall short of that, that You've sent your son, Jesus, also to atone for our sin, to wash us and to make us righteous by grace. 
And Lord, we also pray that you would teach us again and again, anew each day, what it is to walk in greater and greater ways in righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would bring righteousness to your church more and more. Bring righteousness into our homes, bring righteousness into our friendships, bring righteousness into our community groups. Pray that you would continually bring greater righteousness among your pastors here. Lord God, and then as we do that, as we grow in that, we pray that you would be glorified. We also pray that other people would see your goodness. They wouldn't see us, but they would see you. And Lord God, they would want to know you. They would want to draw close to you. And Lord, we also thank you for the hope of a better country to come, that you've promised us eternity with you. Give us hope in that and show us what it is to walk in greater righteousness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.